All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavas. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. HII delivering the advantage. Coming up, is the U.S. Navy focused on its mission? Is it doing what it should to prepare to keep the peace and to be ready to fight if need be? A recent piece in the New York Times raised those questions. Navalist Brian McGrath joins us to break down some of those issues. But first, a look at this week's naval news. North Korea on September 6th relaunched a submarine now fitted with 10 launch tubes that could carry ballistic missiles. The submarine named Hero Kim Gun-Ok is a rebuilt Romeo-class diesel submarine dating from the 1970s. It is not yet clear what missiles are to be carried by this submarine, as North Korea has been test-launching several different missiles from submarines. Photographs indicate the submarine has a new bow section that may not be fitted with torpedo tubes. If completed, this would be the first missile-carrying submarine to enter service with the North Korean Navy. At least two Chinese destroyers closely shadowed a combined U.S.-Japanese-Canadian warship group in the East China Sea during early September. A CBC News video team aboard the Canadian frigate Ottawa showed the Chinese destroyer Hohat maneuvering close to the warships, even moving in during a photo exercise. The U.S. destroyer Ralph Johnson and three Japanese warships the helicopter carrier Hayuga, destroyer Samadare, and the submarine have been operating for several days in the East China Sea's international waters between Japan and China. The cruiser USS Shiloh left Yokosuka on September 5th after 17 years being based in Japan. Shiloh will switch to Pearl Harbor, where the cruiser is scheduled to be decommissioned during 2024. Shiloh's place with the U.S. 7th Fleet in Japan has been filled in by an additional Arleigh Burke-class destroyer. The destroyer USS Rafael Peralta in August completed the first-ever reload of live missiles in Australia, refilling its vertical launch systems with standard SM-2 missiles. The ordnance onload took place on August 22nd at Port Eden in southeast Australia, but was not announced until September 7th. The rearming of Peralta is a further example of increased U.S. military cooperation with Australia. And the destroyer USS Ralph Johnson carried out maneuvers with the Filipino frigate Jose Rizal in the South China Sea on September 4th, a demonstration of cooperation in the face of increased Chinese territorial claims in the region. And on September 7th, the former U.S. Navy patrol vessels Monsoon and Chinook arrived at Manila to be transferred to the Philippine Navy. The decommissioning ceremony for the littoral combat ship USS Milwaukee, LCS-5, was held September 8th at Mayport, Florida. The Milwaukee service life lasted under eight years, having been commissioned in November 2015. Milwaukee never deployed beyond the U.S. Fourth Fleet in the Caribbean and Central America. And the long-running process to decide how to dispose of the famous aircraft carrier XUSS Enterprise, CVN-65, 
inched forward with the U.S. Navy decision announced September 5th to contract with commercial industry to dismantle the ship and its radiological waste. Ruled out were alternatives, including breaking the ship at Puget Sound Naval Shipyard, where all previous U.S. Navy nuclear ships have ended their days. The Navy has identified potential ship, commercial shipbreakers at Hampton Roads, Virginia, Brownsville, Texas, and Mobile, Alabama, and a bidding process is next. The Big E remains stored in Virginia at Newport News Shipbuilding, where she has been since mid-2013 and where she was built in 1957 to 1961. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. All right, let's move to the discussion portion of the show. We are pleased to be joined by Brian McGrath, a retired Navy commander, noted navalist, and probably most importantly, friend of the pod. Brian, thanks for joining us this week. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So two stories caught folks' attention this week, if uh, if social media is any indicator. Uh, the first was a New York Times piece by Eric Lipton. And then there was the Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks's comments on proposed unmanned capability. Let's start with the New York Times piece. Uh, Lipton's piece was entitled, um, at least where I saw it, it was entitled, Faced with Evolving Threats, U.S. Navy Struggles to Change. I found the story to be odd. Uh, I couldn't tell if it was a hastily put together story and that's what grabbed me and and kind of tugged me in a bunch of different directions. Or I, I, I guess I was torn as to whether or not it was, um, you know, maybe chicken and egg. It, it was the function of uh, the Navy's, I, I guess, lacking narrative on all the things that it's focused on. Um, either way, Brian, you were uh, drawn to write um, on your Substack about the New York Times article, and probably more importantly than the article itself, you talked about the topics that it covered. I'd be interested in your thoughts on the article, on those topics, and uh, you know, kind of bring the audience up to speed on uh, on what you wrote. I think your assessment of the uh, New York Times article as odd is spot on. It was odd, but then it's again, it's odd to you and me and Chris Cavis, people who live and breathe this stuff. Uh, to the New York Times readership, it uh, was a general purpose kind of New York Times style uh, uh, treatment. And I can get to that in just a second. I think the timing when you, I think the timing of the story was a little rushed. And I think, uh, I suspect that uh, Kath Hicks's appearance uh, at the end of last week where she made her, her, uh, statements about unmanned and all of the things that the administration wants to do. I think that had some impact on the timing of the story. I think they wanted to ride that wave, uh, New York Times did. Uh, and so I think Lipton's story was uh, timed to come after Hicks's remarks. Um, I guess, you know, I, I, mean, I, I Brian, I, mean, I read the story and I thought, you know, this, this is, what is this story about? It was all over the place. It was ping-pongy. They're doing this, but they should do this, but then they do this and do that. Um, there was no real theme to it other than everything seems to be screwed up. Uh, there was nothing the Navy's doing right in there except that they did put things the Navy's doing right after they said it, they did them wrong. Um, and I thought, you know, you wrote this You wrote this really nice appreciation here, and I think you, you did a great job just pulling out all the, I mean, point by point by point by point, um, kind of inconsistencies in this article, incompletions, inconsistencies. Um, 
I mean, you know, and and there and there's more than what you wrote, but uh, I mean, I I did like the way you you know you pointed this out and this the 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 Lipton piece seemed to be like an either or thing. The Navy's doing this, but they should be doing that. And they're doing that, so that's wrong. They should be doing this. You were much more balanced well, and nuanced about that. I think um, that was missing. I'm 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 a little familiar with uh, Eric Lipton's work and. Um, from what I can tell, this was exactly the kind of story that Eric Lipton likes to write. And that is this, it, it, well, it's a tale of these uh, pernicious forces from outside of government or the legitimate, uh, the legitimate arms of whatever process it is he's looking into, um, who, because of their interests, because of their, uh, you know, the, the, what be they political, be they uh, uh, profit based, uh, that something wrong and something rotten is happening because someone is making money. Um, you can go back and check his yeah. Irv, uh, and you can see that it, he 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 likes to go and uh, expose or at least point at the possibility that there are factors at work here in what we see that are behind the scenes and pernicious. In this case, it's lobbyists. In this case, it's Navy entrenched interests, probably of the, uh, of the flag and uh, the flag officer community. Um, uh, it, is the, uh, it is the interest of the industrial base, uh, which are tied to the political interests. Um, and that if only, if only those interests were removed, if only these externalities were removed, perfection could occur. And perfection is what Lauren Selby says it is, what, you know, Ken Perry says it is in the article, um, and what Brian Clark says it is in, in the article, which is this flowering of technology and uh, especially unmanned technology uh, that that can remove people from the dirty bloody end of this business um, you see some of this in uh, what uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Hicks talks about quite a bit um, but it, it's a it's of a piece there is there are technologies out there that that we that some people believe are being frustrated in coming into the fleet because of these entrenched, pernicious special interests. That's what the what the piece was about. So if you're an, if you're a navalist, um, how how should you take this? Do you just sort of wrinkle your nose and you, you know chalk it up to um, an author style, or are there things in there that? you should be concerned about, or are there things in there that you should feel good about? I mean, your, your sense of, uh, on that. Well, I, I, did, I think it's never good when a recently retired two-star admiral refers to the Navy as arrogant. Uh, that's, uh, and, and what, what bothered me was that that was one of the, like in the third paragraph of the story. And then just after that, there's this discussion of this. I mean, that what CTF-59 is doing in the NAVCENT AOR with, unmanned vehicles of many different kinds is really is something they're doing with the full support of Navy leadership and they're, 
you know, Brad Cooper, I wish I were Brad Cooper's out there doing incredible stuff. Um, because he doesn't have warships, because the Navy's too small, because he can't get, he can't count regularly on the traditional platforms that he would like to have. And so he did what naval officers are famous for. He made do, he innovated, um, and he, he stitched together this wonderful ISR uh, architecture using, uh, uh, you know, uh, imaginative contracting procedures well within the regulations uh, in uh, uh, the United States. He invited uh, friends and allies who have their own contracting that he doesn't have to worry about to bring their stuff in. And, and he and his team sort of dictated the standards, the data standards, and put together a, a, nice, a nice project, a nice uh, architecture. Um, but it's not the it's not the answer to how the Navy will fight. It is a answer to a portion of how the Navy can fight. And it should be encouraged and it should be resourced and it should be brought along. But it's not time to scrap the fleet so that we can have a bunch of uh, unmanned uh, drones and, and, and uh, a potential unmanned weapons delivery platforms. You Someday think- we'll have more of those. Do you think a little? Uh, Chris and I were talking about this earlier, and this this art this article is all over the place. Um, now the Navy participated in this to whatever degree they participated. Um, Lipton went out to Fifth Fleet in Bahrain in the Persian Gulf to see this stuff for himself. Um, he went down to Ingalls Shipbuilding. Um, do you think this article is in any way a reflection of the Navy's ab- ability or inability? to shape its message, whatever the message is. Is there anything in there of that? Or do you think that's kind of beside the point? That's a great question. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Um, and I think when I have some quiet moments uh, and I thought, think more deeply about it, I might come around to that. Um, but at, at first blush, <clears throat> you know, first of all, you don't say no to the New York Times. They are... They are a, a media, very important media source, and you try your hardest to work with them. Um, there were some good things in this piece. First of all, anytime the New York Times talks about the Navy and there are some positive things coming out of it, that's good. I think readers who saw that what, what Cooper was doing out there at CTF 59, I'm glad they have that. Um, uh, I don't think the Navy, the Navy didn't seem to participate that much. I mean, they got a statement out of the, out of the secretary, uh, but I didn't see much more than that. A, a lot, a bunch of retired guys uh, chimed in, but they're, you're probably right. Let's face it. The, uh, the Navy is having a tough time with its message because it has a message. I believe it has a message that it thinks is important. And it needs to get out, but I don't think that message is as well grasped and embraced at the OSD and National Security Council level. And so they have to do what they can. They have obviously they have to support the civilian decision makers. That goes without saying, but they also have to try and make the case for. Um, uh, things other than 
what might be useful after the shooting starts. And that's what this boils down to. There, there are a lot of people who spend all their time thinking about what can we buy, what can we field uh, that will make the conduct of the war more effective. And that is a really important thing. There's no question about it. The problem, that's not the only thing. And uh, the deterrence of the war, the prevention of that war requires other things, other platforms, other capabilities that must also be resourced. And when you get into pressurized budgets, and I'm sorry, an $842 billion defense budget can still be pressurized when it is a tiny fraction of the great economic uh, might of the country. I said in, in my piece, something along the lines of, uh, we, we were spending more on defense than we ever have, but then again, we've had more to defend than we ever had. So let's talk about that technology piece and those that do see or do seek to maybe short circuit uh, current capability and get to some new way of fighting and new way of deterring. Um, as I mentioned at the top, um, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks gave her replicator speech at the Defense News uh, Conference that was held this past week. Um, it was more of a a holistic discussion, but she has talked about these themes many, many times before. Um, our friend uh, Commander Salamander uh, called the speech 80% cringe, 20% excellence. Um, and I mean, you, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I mean, that that may be a good way of, of thinking about it. Um, what do you say to those like um, SecDef Hicks, or excuse me, DepSecDef Hicks, who kind of want to, you know, sort of forget about where we are and get way out into the future and really just focus there. Can we take our eye off the the ball of the next four to 10 years and, and, and get to the, you know, 15 to 20 year mark? Or should we be focused on today's challenge and, and kind of evolve our way into uh, this uh, technological leap? That's a great question because this, um, positive view of technology and what technology can do is very healthy. We need to inject technology into the force. We have to do that. If not, uh, we're just stuck and the world uh, moves past us. Um, the problem is, and, and if I had uh, Secretary Hicks's ear, I would say this to her. I have said this to her when she was not as important as she is now back when she was in the think tank world, um, that our Navy, this Navy, this nation's Navy in particular, uniquely um, has to do things other than efficiently and effectively kill people and wreck things. It must do that. And, and, and a lot of what, what the of the technology that, uh, that she is championing, championing, and I, fully support her championing these technologies, uh, is useful to surveil and target the Chinese, uh, the, the Chinese Army Navy. Um, the, our Navy does a whole lot more than that. And uh, big, fat, slow amphibious ships are very important to those other things. Um, uh, we talk about this, the destroyers are 
come in for a pounding in this Lipton article. Um, uh, destroyers are the are the envy of the navies of the world. Our, our destroyers are, and and it's because they are sophisticated, they are capable, they are lethal, and there are a lot of them. Um, are they are of course vulnerable in modern combat, and as I say in in my piece, everything is vulnerable in modern combat. The problem with substituting large, generally manned warships and amphibious ships with a network of unmanned things is that I, I believe, and this is a belief, this is not proofed, uh, I believe that lowers the tripwire for conflict. I believe that uh, an effective conventional deterrence posture is backed up by capability and will. How is that will demonstrated? Well, that will is demonstrated by letting the other side know that you are ready to risk something really important. That is in fact a billion and a half dollar warship with 313 beating American hearts. That is the essence of deterrence. I am willing to, to uh, risk this treasure because I don't want you to do something. That's what it all boils down to. And I think when, when we begin to think about an unmanned future with a lot of unmanned uh, uh, vehicles, uh, sampling the environment, telling us what's where, telling us uh, where we should be, all those things, that's a good thing. But this sense that 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 this this wall of unmanned capability is going to replace or should even replace um, conventional warships and amphibious ships in in the next five decades. <laughs> I just think it's it's uh, it's premature to think that way. We need to spend a lot of money on the stuff Cathex wants to buy. One of the things we need that to spend I spend a lot of money on ships too. Some of the stuff that I think is is lost in a lot of these discussions, from Lipton's New York Times piece, and frankly, to Kath Kath Hicks's um, latest replicator initiative and the discussion that she's putting out about that, and is that there seems to be an either or equation going on in a lot of these conversations. We have to do less of this and more of that, which is true, but. I mean, every all decisions are compromises. You need a balanced force. You need things to do multiple capabilities at multiple levels. And nothing is a panacea. Nothing does everything you want. And if you have a, you know, if, if, if everything in the budget has to contribute to a high-end active conflict with China, then on the day-to-day -day basis, for every hour, we're not actually trying to kill Chinese and they're not trying to kill Americans we're not really doing a very good job. Yeah, something gets, something is left undone. And, and of course, if that's all you do, then it all, you know, it's so facto, it sort of leads to that. Right? We don't, we have, we have no other purpose other than to kill. Um, that's, that's kind of pointless too, but um, yeah, I, I think a lot great, of that nuance is gone with, with these discussions. Not even the there. great economist and policy analyst, Thomas Sowell once said, there are no solutions in policy matters. There are just trades. 
And that's really what this boils down to. There's, there are trades, there's trade space. Um, for, a, for a given pot of money, you can have these options and you have to choose among them. And I, and I, and I think that maybe, I think maybe leadership is generally choosing wisely. They're investing in incredible sensors and weapons and capabilities and networks and unmanned. The suggestion that they're not spending money on unmanned technology is just looting. I urge the Secretary of Navy and his and his team to get out there and, and just point out, but line item by line item, the the hundreds of millions of dollars that are going into unmanned technology. Um, but we can't just do that. We can't just keep building ships. We can't just build a bunch of drones. There is a trade there. And right. um, I think uh, the present Department of Defense wants to move faster in the direction of uh, non-traditional defense options. So a few weeks ago, we had uh, Brian Clark on. Uh, he talked about his recommendations for what the acting CNO um, should focus on. So, uh, and, and he touched on a lot of these issues. I'll, I'll ask you, um, if you're asked to advise the CNO, where should she be on these issues uh, in, in terms of helping to make that case that, that you just made? The very first thing I would do, uh, Lisa Franchetti has a unique position. And that is uh, because she is the first nominated female service chief. Um, she's not untouchable, but she's close at this point. And this uh, this this concept of presumption is that that keeps her as the vice chief of naval operations from acting like the CNO and putting CNO kinds of guidance out and and being that person. Um, presumption is a norm that the Senate imposes on OSD, uh, and it's a norm that OS, it, OSD follows. I'd like to see. Uh, Admiral Franchetti uh, be be a little more presumptuous. I'd like to see her put some guidance out. I'd like to see her say, um, I am the Vice Chief of Naval Operations. I am the top uniform officer in the United States Navy, and I'm going to act like it. And I'm going to make decisions, and I am going to issue guidance and direction. And if you decide, members of the Senate, to uh, to not allow me to become the CNO when that vote happens, so be it. So be it. But this this pussyfooting around we're seeing from the uh, from the Department of Defense uh, it it bothers me. So I'd like to see her act like the uniformed leader of the United States Navy in all ways. In all ways, um, uh, I would like to see her work really, really hard with the appropriators and the authorizers um, and listen hard because they want more Navy. It may not be the exact Navy she wants or that uh, the secretary wants, but the Hill wants more Navy. She should, she should listen. She should listen not only to what they're saying, but the timing 
that they indicate that their preferences have to be delivered uh, when 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 things are important to be transmitted to the Hill. Those sorts of things matter, especially in the appropriations business. Um, so I, I'd like to see her work really, really closely and the secretary work really closely with the Hill and s start to, I'm not going to say, I mean, OSD won't like that because they're going to think the Navy's working around them. Um, but I think the Navy has uh, some right to do that. All right. Well, Brian, that's all the time we have, we have for that. Uh, by the way, I totally agree with that. I love it. Um, go ahead and act like it. And if the Hill doesn't like it, if the Senate doesn't like it, go ahead. And how about you guys do your job? So uh, right now, right, right now, other people have a job to do. Why don't you do yours? So uh, anyway, on that fun note, uh, folks, our guest has been Brian McGrath, a uh, former naval officer, a ship driver, a consultant to Navy and industry, and noted naval analyst, and clearly a commentator of note. Brian, thanks for coming back on the pod. Thank you, gentlemen. I enjoy this. Now hear this. Now hear this. Well, everyone, it seems, lost a good friend on the 1st of September. Here's Mr. Savello. Well, this past week, noted singer, songwriter, lead parrot head, and maritime enthusiast, Jimmy Buffett, lost his battle with cancer. I loved seeing on social media the tributes to Jimmy, many of which included pictures of his numerous visits to ships, squadrons, and bases. For many of us who served in uniform, it wasn't just that we lost a great musician. It was that we lost a family member. Reading from the Superior Public Service Award presented by Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer to Buffett in 2018, the son of a son of a sailor was an unwavering supporter of the men, women, and families of the Navy and Marine Corps. His dedicated service to our sailors, Marines, wounded warriors, and civilians ensured that they provided highly visible support and gratitude that greatly enhanced morale and welfare across the department. Greatly enhanced morale and welfare, he certainly did. If U.S. Navy sailors are forged by the sea, then their souls are soothed by the music of Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy was born on Christmas Day, 1946, in Pascagoula, Mississippi. His grandfather made his living as a captain on a steamship, and his father was in the Army Corps of Engineers, traveling to India and Africa before settling his family in Mobile, Alabama. Jimmy grew up on the Gulf, listening to the stories of his grandfather that inspired many of his greatest hits. He knew firsthand the joy and excitement that time on and around the water could inspire. He understood the work hard, play hard lifestyle many in uniform embraced as a way of maintaining sanity. His songs captured why many of us loved nothing more than to get underway, but equally loved the sprint down the gangplank for a needed boat drink as soon as liberty is called away. Thank you, Jimmy, for writing and singing the music that captured our feelings and imagination so vividly. Fair winds and following seas, you will be missed. You know, so many lines, so many rhymes, so many times Jimmy Buffett just freaking nailed it. One of my faves uh, came to mind while I was out on the bridge wing of a destroyer one night in the Arabian Sea on a beautiful starlit evening. You know, no place like home when you're this far away. Thanks, Chris. That was great. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Baradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. 
The Cavish Shifts podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Shifts on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>